Hello, I'm Emily Little, and today I'm joined by American sociologist Professor Harriet Zuckerman, who specialises in the sociology of science. She is currently Senior Vice President of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and Professor Emerita of Columbia University. It was at Columbia where she gained her PhD and became a Professor of Sociology, heading the department from 1978 to 1982. Professor Zuckerman's research has focused on the social organisation of science and scholarship. She is the author of the 1979 book, Scientific Elite, Nobel Laureates in the United States, which looks at the existence of a scientific elite. She also co-edited, among other volumes, The Outer Circle, Women in the Scientific Community, and has also published in scholarly journals on subjects such as the reward system in science, scientific misconduct, intellectual property rights in science and scholarship, the history and operation of the refereeing in scientific journals, the emergence of scientific specialities, and the careers of men and women scientists. She has served on the editorial boards of a number of journals, including the American Sociological Review, the American Journal of Sociology, and the Board of Reviewing Editors of Science. Currently a trustee of the Centre for Advanced Study in the Behavioural Sciences and a member of the Board of Annual Reviews, Professor Zuckerman has also served on the Committee on Selection of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, as well as its Educational Advisory Board. On the boards of directors of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Social Science Research Council, and as president of the Society for the Social Studies of Science. She has held a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship and fellowships at the Centre for Advanced Study in Behavioural Sciences and the Russell Sage Foundation. She is a member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Today, Professor Zuckerman is awarded an honorary Doctor of Letters. So, welcome to the University of Warwick, Professor Zuckerman, and congratulations on receiving your honorary degree today. Tell me, what, what does this honour mean to you? Oh, goodness, it means a lot of things. Uh, an honorary degree is among the most uh, elevated honours, most elevated recognition that an academic can get. And it's, um, it was so entirely unexpected. And I was really quite stunned when I got Nigel Thrift's letter. And what it meant to me was a sense that my work over all of the years was considered by some people worthwhile. And that's what it meant. You've dedicated your life to the study of sociology. What, yeah. what first drew you to that subject? Well, um, I was always interested in the reasons why people did things. And even as a, uh, a high school student, I was not satisfied with the idea that every person could respond to their own psychological urges, that I knew that, of course, people have a degree of free will. Of course, I didn't know that that's what it was called then, but that there were larger forces affecting them. And I discovered that that was what sociology was. And I also was very interested in history. I've always been interested in history. And so the combination both of trying to understand what led at a given time to certain events, certain classes of events, which is the sociology part, and also at the given time is the history part, and that's 
what, from the very beginning, interested me. And you've looked specifically at the sociology of science. Yes. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, many people find that mystifying. They can't understand what the sociology of science is. What I do is I look at scientists behaving as scientists as they look at nature. So they are my subjects in the way that nature is the subject of the sciences. And more specifically, when I was a graduate student, uh, the popular fields of study in sociology were um, juvenile delinquency or population or social stratification in class. And I knew that science was one of the great forces in the world and that sociologists were really falling behind by not understanding how the institution of science works. And as it happened in at Columbia, the um, essentially the man who founded the sociology of science was on the faculty, and he set me to a summer job, and my summer job was one of those really boring summer jogs. I counted the authors of scientific papers from the 19th century onward, and I got hooked somehow, and uh, that's what gathered me in, seeing patterns develop, seeing the way science, big science developed, and just through the growth of the number of authors, you got a sense that this was a big change happening in science. So that's how I got into the science, and it, it it is a wonderful site for research on basic sociological problems. You know, whether it's a study of formal organizations, you know, how do people organize themselves to do what's very difficult work, or as in the case of my work on Nobel Prize winners, how does the prestige hierarchy work? What do people have to do to get to that level? of recognition and achievement. And is it true, for example, that Nobel Prize winners are the greatest of all scientists? Well, they're not. Uh, But that's not to say they aren't great scientists. It just means that there are those who, for one reason or another, haven't gotten Nobel Prizes, who are whose contributions have been just as important, but for one reason or another, either they're in the wrong field, the Nobels only cover three sciences plus economics, so it rules out all the people that do astronomy and mathematics and studies of the ocean, and that's only one reason why. So, um, But that's a basic sociological problem. And the work I did on men and women in science, on gender and its role in shaping scientists' careers, sociological problem. And the territory was wide open, and I, you know, was able to jump in and try lots of things. And you did find, obviously, with this this book, The Scientific Elite, that there was this discrepancy between men and women in science. Well, um, discrepancy. Uh, At the time I did the study, there were hardly any women who had gotten Nobel Prizes, and... um, I also looked at members of the Royal Society, and there were practically no women, maybe a small handful, who were members of the Royal Society. Same thing in the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. And I ended up thinking that it's a complicated uh, outcome, both of the fact that 
there were hardly any women getting degrees in these fields. And so the pools, as one calls them, were very small. And then in addition to that, it takes a very long time for people to get recognized by the academy and even longer to get Nobel Prizes. And so what they were drawing on was a tiny, tiny uh, group of people that could be considered. And then and then there were sure, you know, there were very distinguished women who had a very difficult time. And, uh, you know, how, how can I not think of now the famous Rosalind Franklin who didn't discover the double helix with Watson and Crick. But had she had a little time, she, I mean, even Crick says she would have done it. So um, it's, you know, it's preference and it's the way people are treated. And it's not quite making the discovery, but if she had had a bit more time, she might have. So that's that's what's fun about what I was doing. And that brings me on to something as well that I believe your late husband worked on, which yeah. is multiple discovery, oh, which indeed. not only in science but across global history yes. seems to be you know, very prevalent. Tell me about that. Oh, multiples are, are fascinating. Everybody who sees them written up in the newspaper says, oh, what a coincidence. Isn't that curious? Except it's not at all a coincidence. It's not at all that um, in the sciences particularly, people know which, at least the really good scientists know, which the important problems are. And they are motivated to work on what's important because that's what brings the recognition and the fame and so forth. So there are concentrations of people working on the same things. What my husband, who was decidedly historically oriented uh, ended up believing is that all discoveries are potentially multiple discoveries and that they are not coincidental at all. They are just the way science works. And um, if one thinks about it, they serve another purpose, uh, not intentionally, as far as the scientists were involved were concerned, they tend to validate one another. So when two or more people discover the essentially the same phenomena, it's a way of saying, this is real. This isn't just, you know, what someone has made up. And uh, so multiples are very interesting. And one thing here at Warwick that that our academics enjoy is the interdisciplinarity that's encouraged here, the, yes. the cross-faculty research yes. that goes on here. That obviously must speed up the process for these discoveries. Well, it, it does. Uh, and I, uh, I did some work that Margot... Actually, Margot Finn did mention, which uh, I would, was collaborating with a geneticist, a very great geneticist, a man who had a Nobel Prize, Joshua Letterberg. And we were looking at, we looked at the history of the discovery he made about the, the way bacteria multiply. And his was, in some ways, a counterexample to the multiple story. Nobody was working on it. All scientists at the time thought that Everybody knows that bacteria 
multiply by dividing. I don't know whether when you were a student in high school you were looked at droplets of water under a microscope and you could see the little bacteria dividing. Well, for a number of different reasons, he had the idea that maybe that wasn't entirely true. I mean, it never would have been a multiple discovery if he hadn't been had this sort of bizarre thought that maybe it works that way. So science does not necessarily develop in a unilinear fashion. Problems get put to the wayside and don't get picked up. And others get, you know, have uh, so many people working on them, they get solved very fast. So it's a, it's a fascinating part of social life. And I have always said that I'd much rather study scientists than juvenile delinquents. Well, you've had a, a long association with Columbia University yes. as well in, in the United States. You did your PhD there, right. you taught there, you became head of the sociology department. department. Um, what what kept you there and, and did you really enjoy the teaching aspect? Oh, I love the teaching. What kept me there? Well, first, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I'm one of those few people that didn't come to the city. I was born and brought up there. I have always felt most alive in big cities. I went to college outside in a very rural atmosphere. Vassar was a beautiful place. Um, And when I came to Columbia, I discovered that this, the sheer drive and vitality of the place, the argumentativeness of the students and the faculty, and the skepticism they showed about everything and the incredible learnedness that I saw was just very appealing. And people often think that I'm crazy to have this, what I have often thought of as indecent affection for this very scrappy place. But I love it there. And now that um, I'm a professor emerita, I've gone back to being a student. And I have been taking courses in history, and I'm having a wonderful time. So I, you know, it's a kind of uh, reversion to my old days as a student. And you also worked alongside your late husband, yes. Robert Merton, there yes. as well. Yes, we, we discovered that um, being married to one another uh, didn't preclude working with one another, but there were certainly times we argued with one another. <laughs> And um, as time w- went on, especially after I went to the Mellon Foundation, we uh, like to think of one another as our most most honest and most devoted advisors. And we took in one another's washing, as we put it. So uh, working with a spouse is, uh, if you trust them, is really the best. Where do you think sociology is going now? I think it's going in several directions. One is that it's becoming ever more quantitative and using mathematical models. And that puts a certain spin on the kinds of problems that people study. Uh, You heard today about networks and how important networks are, and of course it's all over the place. Well, sociology is at least one fast-growing branch of it isn't called network analysis, and they're studying networks of a great variety of kinds, ranging from, you know, who 
who telephones one another to who helps one uh, people get jobs. But another part of sociology is moving ever more towards the humanities, and historical studies are also becoming very fruitful and very popular. I'm not sure that it, you know it's going in any particular direction. It's going in the direction of making use of the methods and concepts and knowledge of other fields. And that, I think, is a not a bad thing. And tell me about your work, your, your role as vice president at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Well, I certainly never thought that that would be where I would go. Uh, again, it was a great surprise. Um, the short story is that the person who held the job roughly equivalent to mine was asked to become president of Harvard University, Neil Rudenstein. And I had been an advisor at Mellon. Since most of what it does is to support higher education, I was asked to run a little program for them when I was a professor, which I did. And then I was asked, why didn't I come to the foundation for a year to, as it was put, help out? So that was not what I wanted to do. I was uh, about to have a sabbatical. So I was going to go off and spend a year doing research. And the then president of Mellon, William Bowen, is a very uh, effective administrator. And he said, if I can get Columbia to let you go on sabbatical the year after you come here, will you do it? Well, that seemed interesting. And the year I spent at Mellon, I enjoyed myself. So I just loved doing what I was doing, but I thought I, would, I was going back. And the, the key moment came. Bill Bowen asked me to stay, and I said, no, I have, you know, I'm a professor. I have all these students. I love teaching. Um, I had this research going, and I kept saying no. And then my husband, perceptive man, that he was, said to me, have you noticed that you leave home quite early, smiling, and you come home quite late, smiling? What do you think that means? And so I thought about it, and I said, well, I was having a terrific time. And that's how I ended up staying at Mellon. And I have to say, I, there was not one boring moment that I had. How could it be boring? I was talking to, to some of the most um, original and interesting minds for 20 years. That's not a bad way to spend one's life. And tell me about the work of the foundation. The foundation, about oh, um, two-thirds of the money that it spends is in the field of higher education, colleges, universities, and libraries, and research institutions of other kinds. But it has several other very important areas of support. One is the performing arts, so orchestras, dance companies, uh, theaters, and so on, are a very important part of its set of objectives. In addition, it um, gives grants for museums. Uh, Paul Mellon, who was with his sister, founded the uh, the organization. Paul Mellon was a great supporter of museums in the United States. 
probably the greatest collector of British art in the United States. And so museums are very, we're high on Mellon's set of priorities. And then in addition to that, there for a long time was work on population control and the field of ecology and the protection of the environment. But higher education has been its sort of main, I think you call it remit. <laughs> and, you know, for someone with my interests, it was just wonderful. And then we also support research in the field of higher education to give us some guidelines as to where we, we were going. And I got to oversee the research that was done because that was like what I was doing before I came there. And as you said in your in your graduation speech, you know, funding and, and money, unfortunately, is the way Alas, of the future. It is the way of the future. And, of course, uh, here in the UK, there um, are, you know, uh, not just storm clouds on the horizon. The storms are here. But it's also true in the United States. Universities, especially public universities, are being starved. And the greatest among them, University of California and Wisconsin and Minnesota, are places where it, um, they are public universities, but an increasingly small share of their budgets come from the states. So they have to raise money, but they can't make decisions about their own future. So there's a re real disconnect so um, higher education is under attack in the United States as it is in the UK. And uh, I generally feel that the best survives, but only by trying really hard. It's not, it's not easy. Even, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are, you know, don't have an easy time, nor does, you know, the, great, the, the rich American universities. So to end on a on a positive note, yes. if we can, um, what advice would you give to your fellow graduates, sociology graduates and, and others today as they go into the world with their, their degrees? They go into the world with their degrees. If you can, keep in mind, find something you love doing because boredom is an awful waste of your time and uh, it's just no fun. But loving it is very important. And um, I guess put another way, that means, um, as I have sometimes said to my students, you just have to follow your own inspiration and march to your own drummer. And, you know, if people don't like it well, you have to develop a certain scar tissue and you have to work really hard. I mean, things even the smartest people. They work really hard. It, nothing comes easily. So that's, that's my advice and that um, I've just been hugely lucky to find what I liked and to um, have the encouragement of people who, whose judgment I really trusted and who gave me, well, in the case of my husband, he didn't say to me, what you want to do is crazy, although he did say it sort of. He said, well, try. I was interested in great scientists, and I thought, how am I going to know what a great scientist is? I'll interview Nobel Prize winners. He did say to me he thought it was unlikely I would be able to do that. But he said, try, and I did. I, 
I tried, and I managed to get the agreement of four-fifths of all of the living Nobel Prize winners. And that combination of uh, encouragement and uh, being allowed to do what I wanted to do and it was really very important. That's a, a good note to end yes. on. Thank you very much for speaking with me today, Professor Zuckerman, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here in Warwick. And once again, congratulations Thank on receiving you. your honorary degree. Well, how can I not? This was just a marvellous occasion. Thank you. Marvellous.